Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Why does the Catholic Church not have women priests? If you think that this is a modern-day issue, it is not. Ever since the very early church, first two centuries of Christianity, this question has been debated, discussed, and even in some cases, pretty adamantly encouraged to change the stance that only men could become priests. But in our modern-day context, this is an issue that really does polarize a group of people, but also, in many ways, cause a lot of dissension in the church. So I thought it'd be wise to take a moment to just explain the reasoning why we have only women priests, and also talk about the challenges that come to that. So for the course of this particular episode, I'm going to do two different things. I'm going to start out by number one, going through the main arguments as to why we only have an all-male priesthood, and then, in the midst of that, talk about the different ways that people challenge our reasoning or challenge that notion so that we can grasp the wider context around each of these issues. Then lastly, I want to end with some of the modern-day critiques that come to us from various different people and what those mean in the context of an all-male priesthood or the context of the church's reasoning on an all-male priesthood. But I want to take a moment to start with a foundation for this particular question. The basic foundation for the question of why we do not have women priests come from one central reality of the Christian faith, and that is, we are trying to do what Jesus intends. We're trying to do what God intends for the church. Ultimately, that is a very complicated and complex question. What does God intend? What does he want? How does he make his voice heard? How does he make his way clear? That is a central point in which we'll revolve around all the other issues that I'll be talking about, because that is the most important thing. We are not trying to adapt to society, we're not trying to bring in all these different ideas, or even express our own opinions on what things should be. Our central point is to do what God is trying, what God intends for our church. That is what our goal is. So in the context of all of these, keep that in the back of your mind. What would God want? What is his point? What is he trying to get at? How do we understand that? These are all the central points. So the first major point of reasoning to which the church says this is why we have an all-male priesthood is this. The Old Testament priesthood was all-male, and therefore we should expect the same for Jesus' quote-unquote new priesthood. The main idea behind this one is, in the books of Leviticus and Exodus, the laws of the, of the Jewish people were very clear. The priesthood was all-male. Women were not allowed to be priests. And the only priests were those from the tribe of Aaron and those of the tribe of Levi. They were the two main priests. The tribe of Aaron focused more on the temple worship or the meeting tent worship, the offering of sacrifices, where the priesthood of the Levites, or the Levitical priesthood, focused more on serving the priesthood of of Aaron. And they kind of did functions like carrying parts of the meeting tent or helping out with the sacrifices but they themselves did not usually offer the sacrifices. They were also important because as Judaism spread through the land of Israel, not everyone could make it to the temple for general like cereal offerings or general sin offerings. So they would um, take care of the offerings in those particular regions. That's the role of the Levites. 
So when we get to the New Testament, we would assume that Jesus would follow the laws of the Old Testament, that he wouldn't break any of them. And the main reasoning for that is he said it himself. I am not here to abolish the law of the prophets. I am not here to abolish them, but fulfill them. And I will fulfill them to the smallest part of the letter of the law. In that context, we would assume that what happened in the Old Testament would carry forward into the New Testament and that Jesus would keep the same laws and the same structure as what happened before. Therefore, the new priesthood inaugurated by Jesus isn't really new. It has a new emphasis. It is a different style, but it's the same core values that were found in the Old Testament. Therefore, the priesthood is all male, just like the laws of Leviticus made made clear. The first major challenge to that, or the point in which people say, wait a minute, that's not correct, would be this. The Old Testament was written in a patriarchal society in which men were the dominant sex and women are treated as property. Okay, yeah, a lot of that is true. The Old Testament did very much to degrade women. Women were considered the property of the man, so they didn't have any rights of their own. They couldn't do things like own property or have a job, or have an equal role in society. That was the culture of the Old Testament. But even though we see it in that mindset that the Old Testament was largely patriarchal, as we read through the Old Testament, it gets muddied. Figures like Sarah, Deborah, Esther, Judith, Ruth, Naomi, all of these characters are notable characters in the Old Testament who largely had a massive impact on the Israelites. Deborah was a prophetess. She was a judge. She told the military commanders what to do. Judith, when the tri- the Romans were starting to conquer, called all the, the generals in and said, this is how you're going to fight that war. Esther is still celebrated by the Jewish people as a savior of the Israelite people. These are huge figures that show that even in a patriarchal society, even in a society dominated by men, Women had roles. They had levels of authority. They were even listened to. So in that context, what really did prevent women from being priests? If they could be prophets, if they could be military leaders, what is the, the rub there? But even that, even in, if we see that the Old Testament wasn't quite as patriarchal as we thought, still, the Old Testament was patriarchal, and so was the, the culture of the New Testament. The level of patriarchy really hasn't left our society yet. It's been diminished quite rapidly over the last 200 years to the point where we are to the point where we express more equal roles between men and women. We see them in more in equal settings, too, and given the same equal responsibilities and possibilities, which leads to another point very similar to this one, or challenge number two. If we... The Old Testament was patriarchal, and now we are in a new situation in which we don't see the same roles anymore. Does that mean we can just open up the roles to women and allow for the the priesthood for women? Although that sounds nice, that comes from a societal perspective in which, as we develop and change, so should the church. Is that really what is intended? The main point in which people call that, that point out is they look at the Second Vatican Council, which was from 1961 to 1965. The Second Vatican Council made one point clear. The Church needs to be updated. The Church needs to respond to the signs of the times. And this is characteristic of many of the documents that came out of the Second Vatican Council. The problem is, we interpret those in light of of our modern context in which 
anything can change. And that's not what was intended by the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council made it very clear in its documents that the Church needs to be updated so that it can express its theology more accurately to the new generations. That was the point of the updating. That was the point of the changes. That what was already characteristic of the faith, what was foundational to the faith, what was already understood as the the teachings, were not going to change. How we express them were to change. So one of the ways in which that can change to kind of adapt to our society is that the roles of women could increase, that they can take more leadership roles within the context of the church. And we see that in many different contexts, such as Eucharistic ministers, readers, um, and even roles such as staff members, or even taking the, the helm on a church. All these have been possible and are possible if not normally practiced, which are new roles and, in many cases, leadership roles. The third main challenge that I wanted to talk about is that Jesus could have changed the laws of the Old Testament to allow women to become priests. Well, yeah, that's theoretically possible. Jesus is God. He can do whatever he wants. And so as God, he can make whatever laws he wants. Now, although he could make whatever laws he wants, why didn't he? That's the big challenge. And the challenge comes with the Last Supper, in which at the Last Supper, we know that there were 12 disciples. We also know that those weren't the only people there. There were probably servants who brought the food. I'm guessing that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Uh, Paul, probably Mary Magdala, was also there. Why? Because they followed his every move for the entirety of his ministry. Why wouldn't they be there? The Passover celebration was meant to be for the entire family, so that everyone was present and mandated to be present. Therefore, we have good reason to believe that more people than just the twelve disciples and Jesus were at the Last Supper. But the only people mentioned in the Gospels are the twelve disciples and Jesus. Two points to note about that. First, the Gospel writers have an intent. They have a reason for writing. And when they write something, and specifically in detail like this, where they only mention the twelve, they have a reason for that. The most notable reason is the twelve disciples represent the twelve tribes, the coming together of the people of Israel once again, under a new kingship. The other side of it is this is also seen by the Catholic Church as the inauguration of the priesthood, the moment when Jesus commissioned his twelve disciples to do this in memory of me. He didn't commission everyone, he commissioned only the disciples. But the celebration wasn't meant just for the disciples. The total Passover celebration, the feast of eating the bread and drinking the wine, was meant for everyone there. He passed it around. Therefore, the disciples were the ones to become priests, and everyone else is to become part of the one sacrifice. The second notable thing is that in the Bible, we tend to think of the passages as isolated or kind of on their own, as though Jesus having his twelve disciples there mean that he or meant that he intended that only men could be part of this. Or, as some people contend, that because there are women there as well, everyone was ordained priests. Well, that doesn't fit with the rest of the biblical narrative. The moment of Jesus' resurrection, the moment that he rose from the dead and made that clear, the first person there was Mary of Magdala. The people who were along Jesus' route were named, especially a number of women. 
and whenever there was a conflict, women always got it right. There is no indication in the New Testament that Jesus was degrading towards women, or that he intended for women to be subservient to men, or that women weren't meant to, like, be a lower-class citizen compared to them. In contrast, women were elated above men in many ways in the New Testament. Some of the big challenges that come from that mentality come from St. Paul's writings. For example, some people contend that women had a lower role in St. Paul's writings, such as women were required to wear veils. The reason why women were required to wear veils is because those who were unveiled were considered prostitutes. Similarly, those who let their hair down were considered prostitutes. So instead of allowing this massive amount of freedom to the point where women can do whatever they want, and now society looks down upon Christianity as the weird religion that does whatever they want and is now sexually promiscuous, St. Paul says, keep your veils on, be a good member of society, recognize that you are to bring Christ to the people and help them understand, even if this sounds like it might be degrading to you. Similarly, the passage where St. Paul says women should not speak in church, the Protestant theologian N.T. Wright states that women of that time did not know the language of the liturgy. And since they didn't know the language of the liturgy, they would get bored listening to these very long sermons. So they'd start to chat with their neighbor. And as they chatted with their neighbor, more and more of them would do that to the point where it would become very loud. So the mandate was given, don't speak in church because you disrupt what's going on. It wasn't about women not having a leadership role. So yes, theoretically, Jesus could have changed the laws of the Old Testament. Doing so would have been a conflict in the scriptures. He would have so changed the laws that what was before has now been altered completely. That would be a contradiction. Can God contradict himself? Even if some, we look at some laws like purity laws or food handling laws, those were clearly updated in light of Jesus to look at a different level of cleanliness and purity. So, that we could have seen the laws in the same way as that way. But Jesus didn't. And now we are left with a big, looming question. Well, why not? Why didn't he? He could have, but he didn't. And that's where we have to stop with that point. So, point number two. Jesus is male, and therefore the priesthood needs to be male. Okay. The basic understanding behind this is, the priest is supposed to be in the person of Christ. He's supposed to represent Christ both to the community and to the world. Therefore, the best way to represent Christ is to be for the priest to be male. I struggle with this one. The main challenge to this one, and the one that I would want to emphasize more than anything else, is that everyone is called to conform to Christ. Everyone is called to be Jesus to the world. Men, women, children, everyone. That is the goal of the Christian. Therefore, if we just say priests are supposed to be male because they are called to be other Christ to the world, well then women should be priests because they are also called to be other Christ to the world. There's no differentiation there. This argument doesn't work, except this argument only works when seen in light of the rest of the arguments. Otherwise, it's stupid, and we should not be using this argument at all. Everyone is called to be Christ, and if that's the case, women should be priests because they are called to be Christ just like men. Third reason. Male and female are different. 
the all-male priesthood is about relationships in the church and establishing a theology of offering and receiving. This particular point is complicated, so bear with me for a moment. The main point of this one is that male and female are two different genders that express themselves differently. Men, or maleness, is about giving of oneself, more or less. Femaleness is about receiving. That being said, it sounds like a one-way street. Male Men give, women receive, and then it's done. Not t- technically correct. Built into our biology is a sense of giving and receiving, but it has to continue a loop. It can't just be unidirectional. So the man gives, the woman receives, and then by receiving, gives back to the man in greater something greater, who then receives. So now we have a cycle. That cycle is mirrored in our liturgy and the way the church expresses herself. So for instance, the man as a priest, being in front of his community celebrating the Mass, gives himself through the words of the Eucharistic prayer. This is my body. He is giving himself to his community, who just a moment ago, he received the gifts from the community, and then after receiving them, giving them to God, he turns around and gives them to the people something greater, namely that God has blessed them, turned them into the body and blood of Christ, and now he can give them to the people, who then by receiving them, give back to the priest or give back to God. It's this cyclical motion of giving and receiving that is rooted in our biology, but also helps us recognize what it means to be male and female, how they are different, yet complementary, and also equal. Both are necessary in order to fully express what it means to be human, so that in the liturgy we get a good sense of what it means to be male and female, what it means to give and receive, and how all these relationships are established, developed, and celebrated in the context of the liturgy. So in this way, the priest being in in person of Christ gives himself to the people, and he is called to do that, and it makes most sense through a male as opposed to a female. That does not limit the, the abilities of either, it just shows difference of relationship. The first big challenge is an important one, and it's a very modern day challenge. The first challenge is, we don't ascribe to these gender roles any longer, and therefore we should change the teaching to reflect our times as the Second Vatican Council indicated. To an extent, they're right. As I mentioned a few moments ago, the Second Vatican Council was not about changing our theology or our practices, but allowing them to be expressed in new ways so that the modern world can understand them. That was the point of the Second Vatican Council. In this way, we have seen a change in gender roles. We don't have them as sharply defined as they were 100 years ago, where women were in the house and men were in the the workplace, and then they had very specific ways of dressing and specific ways of relating. Yes, those have diminished. They're different. They're more equal and kind of the same than they've ever been in the course of history. But just because we have different understandings of gender does not mean that we have to change the way gender is. Because if we want to say that gender roles have changed, that does not mean that the ways of relating have changed. If you don't believe me, try this thought experiment. If you are a man, think about how you interact differently with a woman versus another man. Would you go up to a man and give him a hug? Would you do the same with a woman? Would you give a woman a pat on the back? Or would you do that with a man? what's considered appropriate, and how do we relate differently if we know that we're interacting with a man versus a woman? Now, if you're a woman, same basic questions. 
How would you relate differently with a woman than with a man? Would you be willing to go up and give a long hug to a man versus a woman? Would you be willing to hold a man in your arms versus a woman in your arms? How do the difference between interacting with a male versus a female change your way of interacting? This is part of our societally influenced gender understanding. I, I'll be honest and blunt about that. Nevertheless, just by noticing that, we do notice that there's a difference. Now, you might be asking about people who are gender nonconformity or non-binary, namely that they don't conform to male or female, or they have switched and what they thought they expressed themselves more as male, they now express themselves more as female. How does that affect all of this? Well, that leads us into a couple different points. The first one is the very fact of saying that I don't conform to a gender says that there must be something that I don't conform to. That's the basic premise. Otherwise, we wouldn't talk about it at all. If there is nothing that made someone male or something that made someone female or even ways of expression or ways of relating any of these things, then we wouldn't be talking about this issue. We only talk about gender nonconformity and non-binary if there is something that you don't conform to or something that doesn't look like it has poles. Therefore, there is something about maleness and something about femaleness that tells us what it means to be male and female, what it means to be woman and man. This leads to another point that I want to emphasize too, which is another challenge to this idea. The challenge is this. We have changed other parts of our theology. Why can't we change the gender of God or the church? So generally, God is related to as male. We use pronouns like he. We have relational titles like father or husband. We also have the same with the church. The church is considered female. So she has pronouns like she, and we have analogous terms like mother. We have not changed these terms. Our father is the start of the prayer, our father, just like we use female terms for the church. I'm going to be blunt. This is a, a form of idolatry or mockery to change the gender pronouns that go with God or the church. If we believe that people can define themselves under whatever gender they want, and therefore we should adhere to how they wish to relate and how they wish to define themselves, then we should also give God the freedom to define himself as he wishes. If he wants to relate to us as a male, that is the way he wants to relate, and we should allow that. If the church relates to us as female, then we should also relate to the, let the church relate as female. Otherwise, what we're doing is we're making God and the church in our own image. We're making them conform to the way we want to relate to them, not the way they want to relate to us. But the great challenge with that one is, God is beyond all gender. And that's true. He is beyond all gender. He is the fullness of gender. He is the fullness of what it means to be male and female. Even though he has the fullness of gender and he is beyond all gender, he desires and chooses to relate to us in a specific gender. And that gives us relational ways of understanding him as well, such as God gives himself to us and we receive it and then we give in response. If God was related to in female terms, it'd be about receiving us and that kind of mentality. So base, the basic gender role, gender differentiation, pronoun use that we use with God in the church gives us a sense of understanding of who God is and how we relate to him. It makes him a person. Now that I've spoken quite a bit on various issues regarding how what the church says about why we have an all-male priesthood, 
I want to bring up some of the notable arguments for changing this teaching that people have brought up in the modern world and in the past. The first one is, when the Bible was written, the society was patriarchal. Now that we have moved away from a patriarchal society, we need to read the example of Jesus in a different context, which would allow for women priests. Not quite. Christianity opened up new opportunities for women that was largely revolutionary. I argue that the largest change in women's roles came with the advent of Christianity. After Jesus died and rose, and the church started, the roles of women changed drastically. Women could own property. Women could run churches. Women could choose not to be married. They could stand on their own. They could go off in the desert and become spiritual mothers. These were all possible with the advent of Christianity. Even to the point that the seven of the greatest martyrs of the early church, and the most notable ones and the ones that most people recognize the quickest, are all women. Cecilia, Anastasia, Agnes, Perpetua, Felicity, to name just five of them. These women set the tone for Christianity and said to the world, we are something different now. We will adhere to Christ. And they were immense models. In addition to that, the early church did recognize the role of women in many ways. They were the ones who set up for the liturgies. They were the ones who ran the house churches. They were the ones who were there for so many things. And when the Roman persecution of the Christians happened, they were the message deliverers because the Romans didn't think women could do anything, but the Christians knew better and so would send the women. But once the women were caught doing this, everyone is persecuted. Huge difference in understanding the gender roles. In addition to this, St. John Chrysostom in his book on the priesthood, where he's counseling those who think about being ordained a priest against that idea, he says, be wary of women because women are very powerful and could easily take control of what you're trying to do. And then he talks about the situation where a group of women in one church ran out their bishop because they didn't like him. They deposed him. And he said, no, you can't do that. And women were powerful enough to be able to set the standards of theology. They were there for lots of this stuff. So to say that women didn't have a role in the early church is wrong. To say that women could not have changed things or that we could not have changed things in the early church is wrong. In the Acts of the Apostles, there are two notable women, Phoebe and and Lydia, who both ran churches and are noted in the Acts of the Apostles. This shows the level and gravity to which women had new roles in Christianity. Therefore, it is wrong to say that just because the New Testament world was patriarchal, that women priesthood was not allowed. If we expand that realm even further, and this is still Jesus' time, the Roman world, the Greek world, and the Near Eastern world around them was noted for having women priests. The cult of Demeter, the cult of Hera, the church that was in Ephesus, all had an all-female priesthood. Only women were allowed to be in the temple. Only women were allowed to be priestesses. This is huge. Even the big notable one of the Oracle of Delphi was always a woman. So to say that they didn't even have the thought that women could be priestesses or the thought that women could be leaders of the church, no, dismiss that. The This time period had a lot of situations in which women were in the roles of leadership, women were in the roles of religious leaders, not necessarily in Christianity, but throughout the world, that looking around, they could have easily chosen that. 
they could have easily decided that women could become priests, but that was not the case. The second notable argument is that an all-male priesthood is discriminatory towards women and actively dissuades women from taking active roles in the church. This cannot be further from the truth. The priesthood is only one aspect of the church and actually a rather minor aspect of it. Women have a lot of roles. Priests have the role of offering the sacrifice of the Mass, offering the Mass, administering sacraments, bringing spiritual healing to people, and providing spiritual counseling. The only three roles that women cannot do at the moment are offering the Mass, administering the sacraments with the exception of two, and then bringing spiritual healing in the context of sacraments and blessings. That being said, women, however, can do the following roles. They can become leaders of parish councils, organize formation programs, help with the formation and the functioning of the parish, bring communion to the sick, the homebound, those in prison. They can take an active role in their society to bring the gospel message to wherever they are. They can also become readers, Eucharistic ministers, sacristans, hospitality ministers. There are so many other roles that women can take. And in most of my experience, especially my parish here at Christ the King, women take a very active role in what happens here, and they are instrumental in what is going on. So to say that women don't have leadership roles is also wrong. The reason why this particular point is so notable is because when most people look at the church, they see the leadership as strongly and solely male. And frankly, I agree to some extent that because of the way we've developed over the last 60 years, the Pope people who advise him, even the main head of every parish, is always a male. But when we see leadership roles in that way, we think of them as hierarchical or in the sense of um, authoritarian. And that was also not intended. The role of the priest is supposed to be a servant of his people. He is supposed to be there to guide, lead, shepherd, and not necessarily to exercise a dominance over. And as we develop and move into the next few decades, I think we'll see more and more of that come out, where the priest becomes one of a servant of his people, one of a shepherd, one as a guide. And the leadership role will filter out to a lot more people. But I encourage all of you women who are listening, who think that they don't have a role in the church, you have a role. And we would like to see you start it. Third one. Third notable point. The reason why women can't be priests is that men are afraid of that the women will do a better job and therefore will outcompete them. Oh boy, I don't know where to begin with this argument. On one level, I agree. Women would be, make excellent priests, or some of them. I have met some women who would be phenomenal priests. They are compassionate. They are caring. They can um, sympathize with people really well. And they are excellent leaders. Now, are we encouraging women priesthood because they can do better than men? Well, that's also sexism. There are men who would make much, much better priests than women, and there are women who make much better priests than some men. That's just how it works. People have different gifts and talents, and they use them in different ways. To make the argument that the reason why we should have women priests is because they'll do a better job, or because we would get more out of them, or that we think that they would do better in their job is a problem. And the main problem is this. In the Catholic Church, we don't appoint our pastors. We don't appoint our priests. It's not that the community votes and says, you'd make a good priest. Why don't you go get ordained? Conversely, God calls the priest. He calls the person 
who will serve him in that way. And for that reason, we shouldn't look at the qualities that bring a good priest. We should think of how God is working in the life of that person to bring out the good qualities or to bring out the ministry. Because frankly, if we were un- if we were un- not careful with how we look at this, a lot of men who are currently priests should not be priests because they don't have the perfect qualities of a pastor. But they have qualities that emphasize and bring color to the priesthood in new ways and allow different gifts to be expressed. And to allow that freedom reminds us that we're listening to the Spirit move. Not everyone will have every gift they need, but everyone needs to work together to express all of this. Now that I've come to the end of this episode, I think it's wise to make this point. Why does the Catholic Church not have women priests? And the answer is, I'm not entirely sure. Jesus did inaugurate a priesthood that included women. We didn't do it at the early inception of the church, and I don't really know why. We have a lot of reasons to support why we have an all-male priesthood, such as the Last Supper, where Jesus inaugurated the priesthood through his 12 disciples. We also have relational understandings of how men and women relate and how that helps bring out our theology. But ultimately, it's a question worth pondering. And if we really want to play in a realm that's really dicey and really complicated, why did God choose only men? Why didn't he choose women? That's what I leave you to ponder. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 